This is Southern Arch Heretic, Shifting the Burden, Finishing the Proof, and Jury Instructions. Today we finish up the Christological argument by addressing the so-called personal knowledge of God and Jesus, and we talk about jury instructions. I'm Kit Rogers, and I have some questions. Welcome back to my Shifting the Burden series, where the proof for the existence of God is placed into a criminal trial setting, and the burden is on the believer to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The non-believer is presumed correct in our exercise. How does the evidence hold up? Let's explore it. The Christological Argument Personal Knowledge of God When I speak of personal knowledge of God, I am referring to the Christological argument for proof of God's existence from religious experience. This is the most personal of topics, especially for those who've had what they truly believe to be a religious experience. Whether the underlying cause of that individual experience is supernatural or not is really the fundamental question when it comes to this argument. As I have made clear in earlier episodes, I come from a very religious background, and so I have relatives and friends who told me of their personal spiritual experience. Sometimes it will be something fortuitous happening seemingly in response to prayer. I've heard people very close to me state, in all seriousness, that every traffic light turned green and the cars just seemed to part for them because they said a little prayer to Jesus and he never lets them down. There are many stories of faith healing and near avoidances of catastrophe. Coming to you live from rural county, Alabama. A Category 3 tornado ripped through this sleepy little community in the early morning hours. With me is a survivor whose home was spared by the storm last night. You know, I tell you, the the tornado, it destroyed the houses on both sides of my house, but left mine standing as if nothing had happened. I slept right through it. Praise Jesus. God is so good. I wonder if the folks that weren't spared the devastation feel the same way. I see athletes thank God regularly and give all the glory to God when they're victorious. I never see a losing quarterback pointing to the sky and cursing God for the loss, or thanking him for that matter, although I'm sure they see their Lord's lesson in the defeat and probably thank him in their prayers before bed. Um, Dear Lord, I know I should have uh, hit my second read today. Uh, You allowed him to be wide open, and the devil made me throw the out route. Anyway, uh, thank you for the lesson, and and bless mom, and uh, bless dad, and uh, you know bless you know bless especially coach. He may have he may have taken your name in vain a few times and used his you know used it in a sentence with mine today at the same time. I anyway bless him, and uh, 
Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I guess it's all part of the divine plan. Did you know that God, when it comes to college football, is a University of Alabama Crimson Tide fan? It seems he may have turned his back on Georgia this year after a couple of years of feigning loyalty, too. Right now, every Crimson Tide football fan that's listening to this is thinking to themselves, hey, I thought that was obvious. Everybody knows that Jesus loves the Tide and St. Sabin. These fortunate believers will rarely share the devastation of cancer or the natural disasters that personally affected them because it's already been written off as a part of God's plan. Oftentimes, I've heard believers share an anecdote about Jesus turning their life around. We sometimes even hear of individuals who claim to have followed Satan or been in a witch's coven, but who then found Jesus and put that all behind them. First off, in my mind, these same people have already proven that they will believe just about anything and embrace it to a ridiculous degree. So I don't find them very convincing when they speak of their miraculous enlightenment or hearing voices. In fact, the hearing voices bit scares the shit out of me. Like I referred to in earlier episodes, but will state more succinctly here, There are an awful lot of folks that find Jesus in prison. It's like he's hiding in there. In fact, if I had to put a number on it, I'd bet that at least 90% of prisoners believe that they're saved and going to heaven. If rapture comes, I reckon the jails and prisons will be nearly emptied. So that ought to finally solve that overcrowding issue. People that are seemingly pragmatic about most experiences in their life can somehow convince themselves that they can feel the presence of God. If I were to ask, why can't I feel it then? The response almost always has something to do with being open to receiving him. I'm told that if I ask God to come into my life and I sincerely desire it and believe it possible, it will happen. Well, I don't want to bust anyone's bubble, but if you ask a psychic medium whether or not a dead relative is in the room, and you paid them for that experience, and you sincerely desire it and believe it possible, you may feel the presence of that dead relative in that room. Does it mean they're actually there? Probably not. It's amazing what our brains can do. Placebos work. Hypnosis is a thing. Some folks are highly suggestible. Enough said. To his angry God. Through all the night, 
Thou dost me fright, and holdst mine eyes from sleeping. And day by day my cup can say, My wine is mixed with weeping. Thou dost my bread with ashes knead, Each evening and each morrow. Mine eyes and ear do see and hear The coming in of sorrow. Thy scourge of steel, ah me, I feel Upon me beating ever, While my sick heart with dismal smart Is disacquainting never. Long, long, I'm sure, this can't endure, But in short time twill please thee, My gentle God, to burn the rod, Or strike so as to ease me. Robert Herrick, 1648 It always makes my blood run just a little cold, and the tiny hairs on the back of my neck stand up when someone says that they actually hear the voice of God. It's not that uncommon, especially among preachers and priests. What does he sound like? Does he sound like your inner voice? We all have conversations in our head sometimes, but I've never believed that I was actually arguing or conversing with another entity. The best way for me to explain my problem with the claim of hearing God's voice or feeling God's presence or believing that your actions are a response to his guidance is to pose some questions. What if he asks you to, or makes you feel like you should, do something that you normally wouldn't do or that you feel is wrong? Why should I believe that God is instructing you when you say he is, but not someone like Deanna Laney, who told authorities that God sent her multiple signs to use stones to beat her sons, or Dina Schlosser, who informed her husband that she wanted to offer her children to God. She cut her 10-month-old daughter's arms off. Or what if it isn't God? How do you know that the voice you're hearing or the presence you're feeling isn't Satan? He's supposed to be pretty sneaky. Andrea Yates told authorities that Satan instructed her to drown her five children. Just so you don't think I'm picking on women, although Eve did seem particularly vulnerable according to scriptures, there are far more family annihilators that are men, many of whom claim divine instructions from, for their heinous acts. For many reasons, I just find it more difficult to fathom a mother killing her child. I can't think of a single instance in which it would be acceptable for an individual to claim to hear voices that instruct them or to have a personal feeling that some other entity is guiding their actions unless the claim is made by someone that avows religion. If it is divine interference from the one God, which we all passively agree is the only one by our collective silence, right? We aren't supposed to call them crazy, just faithful. To be honest, God instructing people to kill children isn't something new. The Bible is full of instances where God gives that very instruction. So how do we know that God isn't speaking to, to and prodding these murderers? It is all part of his plan, after all. I have one final question, 
If we found out that God existed and was the mastermind behind these murderers who were just soldiers in the crusade because it was part of his plan, would he still deserve to be worshipped? I'm still waiting for some evidence. Maybe I'll feel some. Jury instructions. Hold on a minute. Shouldn't we hear closing arguments before we get to jury instructions? Yes, but because I believe the remainder of the series will basically be a closing argument, addressing the elements and the proof covered thus far, as well as additional arguments for and against the existence of God, it may be more prudent to address jury instructions now. I'll just give a gentle reminder of what's expected from a dispassionate, unbiased, open-minded, and duty-oriented juror near the end. Just the term jury instruction, excuse me, makes me yawn. I think most trial attorneys would agree with me that although important, it is the most boring portion of the trial. The judge is forced to read a multiple-page document into the record in order to properly instruct the jury. Depending on the number of counts in the charging instrument and the number of lesser-included offenses in each count, the instructions can be fairly voluminous. In a trial with a multiple-count indictment and multiple co-defendants, it wouldn't be out of the question for the reading of the instructions to go on for an hour or more. So boring. Sooner or later, some jurors just zone out. Attorneys are not listening at all, and they're usually just trying to stay awake. You have to remember that at trial, closing arguments have already taken place before these instructions. So the attorneys have completed their effort for all intents and purposes, and the adrenaline is draining from their body at an alarming rate. I must confess to you that it is torture. I believe it's torture for the judge and jury as well. The irony in the possible issues arising from the dullness is that jury instructions are incredibly important because if the jurors actually apply the rules and law to the proof provided to them while maintaining neutrality and ignoring any preconceived notions or prejudices, we theoretically return a result based only upon the evidence presented. We get as close as we can to a standard of proof that is acceptable for our civil society. When it comes to locking a human in a cage for the rest of his life or killing him, we at least require the allegations these results are based upon to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt to a group of ordinary citizens who must vote unanimously. When it comes to the existence of God, who controls everything, or the truth as understood by the believer, we defer to that individual person's faith and require nothing. Why is it taboo to question the magic others believe in if it's recognized as religious faith?
as the juror must put aside all preconceived notions and opinions related to the subject matter of this trial and base your decision solely on the evidence that's been admitted and presented. Usually the judge would also instruct you that you can't consider any other evidence other than what was presented to you in the courtroom. However, I'm encouraging you to read every single book and reference you can find as it relates to these questions and the topic of God's existence. Based upon the arguments put forward and addressed in this series, and any other arguments you can think of, is there legitimately reliable evidence that proves the believer's case beyond a reasonable doubt? Is there credible proof that Jesus was God, or the Son of God, or divine in some way? In order to make this determination, you as the juror must be convinced to a moral certainty that there is reliable evidence to prove each and every element of the invented statute. If the prosecution has proven beyond a reasonable doubt and to a moral certainty each element of the statute, then you must find for the believers. If, however, you have a reasonable doubt as to the proof of any element of the statute, or if you have a reasonable doubt as to the provable truth of the prosecution's propositions, you must find for the non-believers. Next, I will provide the jury instructions to inform you of the elements that must be proven. Feel free to write these elements down. Although we're going to cover each one. In order to find that God, referring to the Christian God, exists, you must find that the believers have proven each of the following elements beyond a reasonable doubt. First, that God created the universe. Second, that God created human beings. Third, that God actively participates in the functioning of our universe. Fourth, that God intercedes in the affairs of human beings and communicates directly with them on occasion. Fifth, that Jesus is the Son of God and divine. Sixth, that Jesus was crucified and his death was for the forgiveness of the sins of others. Seventh, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will return to earth. And eighth, that God rewards or punishes humans after they die based upon their thoughts and actions while alive. You must find that there is reliable proof beyond a reasonable doubt as to each of these individual elements in order to find for the believers. For the remainder of this series, I will take each element and address it. Closing arguments usually take that form. Prosecutors, because they have the burden of proving their case beyond a reasonable doubt, get to go first. The defense presents their closing argument. Then the prosecutors get to go again in what usually acts as a rebuttal to the defense's arguments. I'm not presenting this through attorney characters spewing dialogue, and so... I intend to continue with the approach I've had throughout this series. If it makes sense to me, maybe it'll make sense to you. Next time, we start to explore those eight elements. Until then, love ya. Mean it.